Hey fishies, welcome to another episode of Anti-Wombat's Bible Class. Before I really get going today, I'd like to ask your help for a couple of things. The first thing is I'd like your help getting the word out. Share this with your friends and rate, review, subscribe. We're now listed in Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and Spotify. So if you could subscribe in whichever one of those is best for you, if they have a rating system, rate the podcast, that would be fantastic. That'll help more people find it. The second thing you can do to help out is send me your questions. Voicemail is best. The number is 415-504-2289. I like voicemail because then I can play your call on the show. But if social media works better, you can direct message me on Twitter at The Wombat, Instagram at Wombatalim, or you can send me a message from the Anti-Wombat's Bible Class Facebook page. Your questions are what really drive this show. So whether it's you need help navigating a specific situation, you want some more general information about a topic that impacts you, or even if you just need to vent to someone who won't dismiss your identity, send them in. Uh, Show feedback is great too. And I promise to keep your personal information private no matter how you get in touch. First up today, I had a question on Instagram asking me to talk a little bit about non-binary genders. Before I can talk about non-binary genders, I should probably talk about the gender binary. The first thing I wanted to mention here is that I have seen random memes float about the internet over the past, who who knows how long, talking about how there's only two sexes, there should only be two sexes. Well, first of all, there aren't even only two biological sexes. There are intersex people. There are also people with chromosome variants besides the standard XX and XY that everyone knows about. There is, in fact, a spectrum of biological sex. So why would there only be two genders? When it comes to gender, people researching the concept of gender have found it very difficult to disentangle how much of it is social and how much of it is biological. There's some studies, for example, with other primates where females tend to play with dolls and, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, obviously it's not a one-size-fits-all. And frankly, most of the attributes we as a culture attribute to male or female gender are fairly arbitrary. There's no really good reason why men, for example, would be considered to be more competitive when women really are just as competitive. If you've ever spent time in a group of girls, you know this. It's That is not a gendered thing, but culturally we make it out to be. We also can't discount the cultural bias we have towards men. This isn't just, you know, the the uneven distribution of men and women in positions of power, but it, and the gender pay gap, which is something I'm sure you're familiar with. But there are also little things like the way we dress. Currently, it is acceptable for women to wear pants, culturally acceptable for women to wear pants, which are traditionally a male garment, but we're still not okay with men wearing dresses, for example. It's There are some concepts of gender that include, like, modes of dress. Gender neutral, quote-unquote, is typically stuff that, you know, 100 years ago you wouldn't see women wearing. There's still a basis in the way men dress that women have adopted, and it's now okay for that, but the reverse is not also true when you're talking about the broader culture. When you put all this together, 
basically result is when you try to fit yourself unnaturally at either end of this gender binary, either fully masculine or fully feminine, and take on all the trappings that our culture tells you you need to, it's going to be pretty unhealthy for you unless you're naturally like that. And honestly, I don't know anyone who is naturally like that. People generally have a little column A, a little column B, because the columns are mostly made up anyway. There's a fit somewhere in between. And you should really fit yourself in this line from A to B. Put yourself where you're comfortable. You know, and when I talk about, like, putting yourself where you're comfortable, you know, that includes things like it's okay to identify as a boy even if you like wearing dresses because dresses are still something that are kind of taboo for boys to wear but that doesn't make you a girl if you feel like you're a boy otherwise so when we talk about non-binary genders that's basically anything that doesn't fit at one end or the other of the binary so this could be agender people who are no gender or both perhaps or gender fluid someone who you know, moves from one end to the other, depending on the day or the hour even. Or demigender, someone who doesn't identify strongly, slightly over on one side. Any of these are okay. Honestly, even if you feel like you're just barely a girl, if you want to, you can still identify as a girl. Even if you're, you know, maybe two-thirds of the way along in one direction or the other, if you want to identify as non-binary, that's fine too. In some cases, non-binary folk will want some sort of, you know, hormonal treatment or surgery. Not all of them do. I know a wide variety of non-binary folks myself. I have one friend who was born female, has been taking testosterone. They feel a lot better about it, identify as non-binary. I have another friend who has boobs and a full-length beard. So your, your expression can be all you, however you want to do it. Do what makes you comfortable, what feels right to you. I identify as non-binary myself. Um, I kind of lean towards a gender, but it's more a matter of, I feel like I have a gender, but we don't have the vocabulary to express what gender I am, so non-binary will do just fine. I also happen to be pronoun agnostic. I don't care which ones you use to describe me. Most people use the female ones because that's how I look in terms of at least body shape, but I am by no means tied to that. I call myself Auntie Wombat. I've been an aunt for a very long time. I've been an aunt for longer than I had vocabulary for my non-binary gender even, because that's a really relatively recent thing in our culture, at least that we had words for. And one of the great things about this time we live in now is we're actually to a place where some of us can even get state IDs that have no gender on them. I believe as of this week, I believe we are now up to 12 states that allow non-binary genders on IDs. And by non-binary, I mean they'll have an X or a U that isn't an M or an F. The next question I had was also from Instagram. A trans guy wrote in saying uh, his mom was supportive, which is great still thinks it's a phase, which is not as great, um, but wanted to know more about the transitioning process. So for this, 
I'm really only limited to a high level overview. There's going to be a lot of details that are going to depend heavily on what state you're in. It's also going to depend somewhat on yourself and what you work out with your doctor, for example. So I can really only do this at a high level, but I'll do what I can. So transitioning kind of comes in three phases and they generally go in this order. You don't have to make it all the way through to the end. It's going to be up to you. The first phase is the social transition. This is where you start using your chosen name, your preferred name, your preferred pronouns. If you're transitioning from female to male, you might want to get a chest binder. Um, that'll basically hides your boobs. Um, I highly recommend gc2b.co for that. That is a company owned by trans men. They're affordable. They're, I believe, $30 to $35, depending on which one you get. They have a ton of colors, including five shades of nude, which is awesome. They're high quality, got a real, t really detailed sizing chart, and some great care instructions. That's the kind I got for uh, my stepson. While you're in the social transition phase, you should really give some thought to uh, why you want to transition and how far, how far you want to go. Um, understanding why you identify the way you do can help inform your decisions later on. Because this is the only one that you can really fully take back easily. The second phase is usually the medical transition. Now, this is something that some states cover under medical insurance, some states don't. You're going to have to do some research there. And if you're under 18, you are going to need your parents to sign off on it. Generally, with the medical transition, you'll start with hormone therapy. So obviously, you'll need a doctor for this. And the doctor will probably want you to have gone through your social transition first. And you definitely need to talk to your doctor about what you can expect from taking these hormones and what the possible downsides are. That's also very important. So you can be fully informed on what you're in for and you know, maybe it might turn out that the downsides are something that don't work for you and you should be aware of that before you get started. The other part of a medical transition is surgery and this will often require you spend some time talking to a therapist before you actually proceed. Top surgery is fairly safe and effective no matter which way you're going. Bottom surgery is a little more difficult, especially if you're going female to male. Um, it's Female to male, the technology just flat out isn't there yet. But even a lot of male to female um, trans folks never get the bottom surgery. Um, that is the least likely part to actually go through with out of all of this, just because it is the most difficult to get right and wind up with functioning sexual organs that work the way you want them to. Again, you'd want to talk to your doctor about pros and cons may or may not actually be for you in the end. The third phase is the legal transition. Um, this involves a legal name change, probably. It could also involve amending your birth certificate, although we are currently, fortunately, living in a place where um, you can get IDs in some places without amending your birth certificate first. But I do recommend doing that if you're going through all this process, it'll save you some headaches if you go through that part as well. In terms of like a U.S. passport, um, you can 
get a passport if your birth certificate doesn't match as long as you have a doctor's letter and there's some formats on like there's some websites you can look it up what format this needs to take but basically the doctor's letter has to say that you are completed with your transition whatever that means it doesn't require all of the medical transition stuff to be done but it has to be done for you so you can do this even without for example the bottom surgery but you have to be completely through the process in order to get a passport with your preferred gender on it some state ids um, don't require that much generally the same states that allow non-binary ids are a little more lenient when it comes to getting your preferred gender on the state id but again if you get your birth certificate amended that will smooth the process along and it'll even make it so you can get the correct id in the states that don't have the more liberal gender laws in terms of what you can put on your id so i hope that's enough to at least get you started and get you an idea of when you're in for down the road so now we're going to completely shift gears buckle up it's going to get a little dark we're going to shift over to talk about mental health and suicide the most common forms of mental health issues are anxiety and depression, and these are way more common than you probably think. I personally have dealt with issues with depression in particular since I was around 9 or 10 years old due to some early childhood trauma. And while they are frequent results of trauma, they can manifest even without the trauma. In fact, I know very, very few people who have not dealt with anxiety or depression or both at some point in their lives, and that does include my handful of cisgendered heterosexual friends. However, the uh, incidence of anxiety and depression, especially long-term, are definitely much higher in the LGBTQ plus community, mostly not because there's anything wrong with us, but because so many people are intolerant of us, and that puts stress on the system. Stress can lead to anxiety. Stress can lead to, lead to depression. Now, there is a movement going on right now in our modern times to normalize mental health issues because until very recently, it's been very taboo to talk about your mental health, but we have a lot of people out there doing the work, putting the word out that, hey, this is a thing that is actually common, and if you are up for it, adding your story to the voices in the internet be helpful for other people who are going through it and maybe don't feel up to sharing their story. It helps other people not feel alone. If it's an option for you, I would recommend at least giving therapy a try. It doesn't work for everyone, but it's usually worth at least trying. In terms of confidentiality, there I'm sure you've heard about doctor-patient privilege, which does exist in the mental for mental health treatment. But when it comes to whether your therapist is going to share what you tell them with your parent, that's obviously going to be a concern if you're a teenager. Most states will keep uh, the mental health treatment with a teen patient at least 14 years old. Um, confidential from their parents as well unless the therapist the therapist does have the discretion to decide it is really in this teenager's best interest that I tell their parents what's going on. So the example in one of the resources I was looking at was 
therapist probably isn't going to tell your mom if you're drinking, but the therapist might tell your mom if they think you have a drinking problem. Another thing to keep in mind is that therapists are mandatory reporters, which means if you tell them about something that they determine is a form of child abuse, they are mandated to report it, um, not to your parents, but to CPS or whoever. Um, the reason I mention that is you might think, oh good, my parents are going to get caught for me reporting this abusive thing that's happening. The downside is if it's that bad, you wind up in foster care, and foster care can be really bad for queer teenagers. So do keep that in mind. I don't want to discourage you from talking about this stuff, but there is a potential downside. If you find yourself in the care of a therapist who is prejudiced against LGBTQ people, or they somehow think your identity is part of your problem, you absolutely can and should demand a new therapist. You are allowed to fire your therapist because if your therapist is working under the assumption that the reason you're having problems is because you're gay, that therapist will only hurt you. They will not be able to help you. It will cause more harm than good. So absolutely, if you find yourself in that situation, demand a new therapist. Another option is if you belong to one of the more progressive religious institutions, and yes, they do exist. Um, talking to someone in the clergy might also be helpful. Um, there's some you know, pros and cons there too. Clergy are still mandatory reporters, much like therapists. They generally aren't licensed therapists, so they haven't necessarily gone through the same training, which, you know, pros and cons there too. Um, and another thing to keep in mind is that confidentiality laws that cover therapists do not necessarily extend to clergy. They also have some privilege between uh, their, their, their people and the law, but they don't have any laws covering what they can disclose to your parents. And that brings us to suicide. LGBTQ teens are unquestionably more likely to be suicidal than their cisgendered heterosexual peers. All I can really say about that is you are not alone and you are not the problem. The problem is the people around you not being accepting of who you are. If you do sometimes feel suicidal, my best recommendation to you is to ask your friends to check in on you from time to time. It's hard to reach out when you're at the bottom, but if you have your friends, they know to reach out to you if they don't hear from you or whatever. Sometimes them reaching you is what it takes to pull you back out. We have a few suicide hotlines in the United States. Uh, the Trevor Project has a hotline which is 1-866-488-7386. Trevor Project is dedicated to helping LGBTQ teens. Uh, there's also the Trans Lifeline. They have a number in US 877-565-8860. And in Canada, it's 877-330-6366. And of course, there's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. I'm going to go ahead and put all three of these numbers and their associated web links in the show notes for this episode. I'm also going to put in 
uh, got a couple of links to some stats and sources that I used in researching this show. Um, and really, suicide is its a final solution to something that may be a temporary problem, but at the same time, it's, it's a thing that people go through. I've no, lost... I think I've only lost one friend to suicide, but I know a lot of people who have lost other friends. And um, really, I hope I hope you can reach out or have your friends reach in if you get to that point before you're gone for this world. And I hate to end the show on such a down note, but here we are. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Be safe out there, and I'll talk at you next week.